Good evening. The Lord be with you. Uh, thank you for coming out to tonight's Good Friday service. We're going to do something a little different. We're going to be walking through the circumstances of several people as they made their way to the cross. You know, Good Friday is a paradox, isn't it? Such joy for us because we know what Christ accomplished on that cross. But for people who were making their way to the cross, it was a dark and very difficult time. Each person that we're going to talk about this evening faced a difficult dilemma. They had certain choices to be made. And these are the same choices that we face in light of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ our Lord. And so for our first person to discuss this evening is the woman of Bethany. And to read her story, I'll be looking at Matthew chapter 26, beginning with verse 6. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it out on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Amen. What a beautiful passage of scripture. Let's start with the woman herself. Who is she? We're not 100% sure. John's gospel identifies her as Mary. It could be Mary Magdalene. That's a topic of debate. The gospels tend to refer to her as a sinner, which if you look at some of the Greek uh, language there, it could be interpreted as an immoral person, which might seem to fit a Mary Magdalene of sorts. But what we do know is that she carried an alabaster jar with some very costly perfume. This wasn't uncommon. Many women had an expensive alabaster jar that they used to carry around their neck. It cost almost a year's wage to have an alabaster jar full of this perfume. But let's look at the scene itself. Jesus makes his way to Bethany. This is the town where Lazarus was raised from the dead. It says here in the text that he was at the home of Simon the leper, we don't think he perhaps was a leper at this time. He probably was a leper who had been healed. And the moniker probably stuck to him, unfortunately, Simon the leper. Luke's gospel refers to him as a Pharisee, that this is the Pharisee's house. Well, then, if that's true, then there would likely be a larger crowd of people because Pharisees often had dignitaries come to their home for dinner. And though you may not be sitting at the table with the, the higher echelon of people, there were people sitting along the walls of the, of the house in the room just listening in to the conversation as it was taking place. Luke 7 says that this woman learned that Jesus was there. And she as an uninvited guest, and you say, Pastor Brian, how do you know she was uninvited? She was a sinner at a Pharisee's house. First of all, Pharisees don't associate with sinners, and they certainly don't associate with immoral women. So she came anyway, an uninvited guest, entered the house, broke the seal on her alabaster jar, and anointed Jesus 
with it. And in fact, Luke's gospel said she anointed it with the oil and with her tears. Why did she do this? Well, here in our text, verse 12, Jesus said that she prepared his body for burial. Jesus had told these people countless times before that he would be put to death. In fact, in verse 2 of 26, which was not that far in the past, Jesus came right out and said, I'm going to be crucified. And the only one in that whole house who understood Jesus, the only one who really knew and believed what would happen to him was this woman. In fact, in Luke, Jesus rebukes Simon the leper for not so much as even following the custom of the day and washing his feet when he came in the door. There was no passion for Jesus Christ whatsoever. Oh, they wanted him around. They wanted him in the room. They wanted him to be the topic of conversation. But they didn't want him in the room of their hearts. They didn't want the very word of God in their life. And yet this woman, upon hearing that Jesus was was in town, had a choice. Would she follow the cultural, religious life and be just as dispassionate about Jesus as everyone else around her? Or would she be fully devoted to the one who could forgive her sins, knowing that his death was the only means by which she would be forgiven, therefore he needed to be anointed for burial? That's the choice that we have. How shall we follow Christ? With dispassion or with devotion? Jesus said that the one who has been forgiven much loves much. This woman had been forgiven for much and she loved much. Have you been forgiven of your sins? That's what we're talking about tonight, isn't it? The crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Redemption accomplished by his shed blood on the cross. You see, in this text, he's headed to the cross. And we are on the other side of it. Confess your sin. Repent. Turn away from them. And experience a fully devoted life of love to our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Our second person of interest this evening is none other than Peter. And I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 26, beginning with verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him and said, You too were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you're talking about. When he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. A little later the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you two are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately... A rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Amen. Wow, let's set this scene for a moment. Jesus had just been arrested at the Garden of Gethsemane, and they took him to the high priest's home for interrogation. 
In Luke's gospel, chapter 22 and verse 54, we see that Peter had followed from a distance what was going on. And while they were there in the courtyard of this high priest's house, people began recognizing him. Peter the brash, Peter the bold, Peter the one who so often stuck his foot in his mouth was now again called upon to speak. Peter's dilemma was very clear, wasn't it? Do I deny Jesus or do I declare him publicly in front of everyone? Now, that's not an easy scenario. He was the one who saw Jesus forcibly seized from the garden. It wasn't a matter of, hey, let's come downtown for questioning. This was guards with clubs and sticks and spears grabbing him forcefully, dragging him to the high priest's courtyard. Peter saw how they handled Jesus at the high priest's house. Oh, yes. In John's gospel, which we'll see a little bit more in just a second, makes it very clear that Peter could see the interrogation of Jesus happening at that moment. Peter saw them spit on Jesus, beat him with their fists, slap him around, and mock him constantly. And while all this was going on, the bystanders saw Peter, and I'm sure he had a cloak up over his head trying to hide in the shadows, but they saw him and called upon him to answer the not-so-simple question, are you Jesus' disciple? Are you in any way associated with him? And I imagine his mind racing. If I say, yes, I'm one of his disciples, they'll do the same thing to me that they did to Jesus. Actually, probably worse. The religious leaders at least had a measure of decorum, if not brutal, in what they were doing. Peter was facing a mob. Mobs can be quite uncontrollable and very vicious. And in that moment, he made the choice. I will deny Jesus. I will deny knowing him. I will deny being his disciple. I will deny being associated with him at all. And according to the text, the more he denied, the more vigorous and crude were his denials. Well, we know how the story ends. John's gospel said at that moment that Jesus denied him the third time, the rooster crowed and Jesus turned and looked at him. Why? He wanted Peter to remember what he had said to them. Luke chapter 22 kind of gives us a fuller account of everything that was going on at the Last Supper. He told Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And then when you have returned, you'd strengthen your brothers. Peter continued to deny that, but then that's when Jesus told him about the rooster and the three denials. Jesus wanted Peter to remember this. But what's so beautiful in this moment, in the midst of such suffering at the hands of wicked men, Jesus ignored the pain of the beatings, the shame of the spitting and the mockery, and he turned and looked to Peter. I know when I'm experiencing pain, sometimes that's all you can focus on. Jesus stopped and put his focus on Peter. And he didn't look with Peter with this angry, how dare you kind of look. He looked at Peter with love and compassion. He wanted Peter to know that Jesus already knew that this was going to happen. And then what he was going through at that moment was sufficient to forgive him of his sin. Peter's dilemma is our dilemma, isn't it? 
what shall I say about Jesus? Will I deny him or will I declare him publicly? Jesus went to the cross amidst people who were very willing to deny him. Confess your sin, repent before God, be saved, but then be willing to publicly stand up out of love and joy for what he has done for you and declare that he is my Savior and he is my Lord. Amen. And now we are going to move on to Pontius Pilate. And I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 27, beginning with verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who was called the Christ? For he knew that because of envy, they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with the righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who was called the Christ? They all said, Crucify him. And when he said, why, what evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And the people said, his blood shall be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Amen. Uh, this account is in several of the Gospels. And I chose Matthew 27 just really mainly for its brevity compared to the other accounts. But I will be synthesizing some of that information from the other Gospels. But let's talk about Pilate. Who was he? In this passage, they call him a governor. And yes, the Jewish custom at the time was to refer to him as a governor. But his official Roman title was prefect. A prefect was just an ordinary upper middle class guy. He was a free man. He owned some property. But becoming a prefect was a fast track way of moving up the social strata in Roman society. He was probably friends with Tiberius. And Tiberius assigned him to Judea in order to keep the people under control. In fact, that's what prefects did. When the Romans came into the town and conquered people, they allowed them to have a pseudo-government amongst themselves, a little bit of freedom of religion, so long as the people were under control. And that's what the prefect was designed to do, although Pilate was known a bit for his cruelty. Now, we are dropped here in the middle at verse 11 and what the Romans called the praetorium. And the praetorium is just like a courtroom. In fact, our nation's legal system is based on the Roman legal system. The prefect or the governor would be the judge. You'd have opening accusations. The governor would allow the accused to answer guilty or not guilty. 
You'd have witnesses, cross-examinations. That's really what's going on in this passage. In a way, I kind of feel bad for Pilate. He was constantly outmaneuvered by these Jewish leaders. For starters, the religious leaders were crafty in the accusation. They didn't say that he was the Messiah. If they went to Pilate and said, we want you to put him to death because he's the Messiah, he would have waved his hand and said, that's, that's your matter. That's a spiritual matter. That's not mine. What they said was, he is the king of the Jews. He's making himself out to be a king. Now, in the mind of a Roman, that meant opposition to Roman rule. Now I have to at least have a trial on this. In Luke 23, Pilate, throughout this trial, consistently held that he found no fault in Jesus. He even punted the matter to King Herod. After King Herod rough-handled him a bit, sent Jesus back to Pilate. Pilate knew the custom of Passover, that they would set a prisoner free to kind of placate the people, make them happy. And I'm sure he was thinking to himself, if, if I have Jesus thoroughly beaten and scourged, and I'll release them according to this Passover custom, that'll satisfy the crowd. Not going to have it. When Jesus was brought back after being beaten, viciously scourged, the crowd shouted for Barabbas's release. Barabbas was a terrorist, an insurrectionist, one who wanted to take down Roman rule in Judea. And I'm sure that really confused and scared poor Pilate. But despite all his efforts of trying to exonerate Jesus, the crowd kept crying out for his crucifixion. Over and over, Pilate kept asking, why? I find no fault in this man, at least one that would require the death penalty. Then the Jewish leaders pulled out the big guns, a political trump card. John 19 and verse 12, if you release this man, Pilate, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. And then they doubled down on it two verses later and said, we have no king but Caesar. Pilate the prefect. Pilate the politician, Pilate the guy that was just trying to elevate his station in life, now had been completely outmaneuvered. His back was in a corner. If these leaders sent a message to Emperor Tiberius, Tiberius was known for his paranoia and for his cruelty. If they had sent a letter to Tiberius, Pilate was as good as dead. So now Pilate was faced with a very clear dilemma, wasn't he? Do I crucify Jesus or do I crown him? Oh, when I say crown, what I mean is that Pilate let Jesus free. It would be tantamount to supporting Jesus' claim, at least in the Jewish leaders' minds. Of course, we know he did crucify Jesus. You know, interestingly, do you notice the contrast between the woman at Bethany and Pilate? The woman devoted herself to Jesus and didn't care what people thought around her. And yet Pilate caved to political pressure and denied the claims of Jesus. You see, Pilate's dilemma, again, is our dilemma. Will you, what will you do with Jesus? Will you acknowledge his kingship over your life and really all of life over this whole world? Or will you deny that claim? You know, interestingly, Hebrews 6, 6 addresses this very thing. 
The author speaks to people who have experienced the gospel, heard it many times, maybe not in a saving way, but they heard it, had some benefit from it by being in the church around the people of God, maybe going to worship services, yet their lives remained unchanged. And when they reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, it says in verse 6, it is impossible to renew them to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. So what shall you do with Christ? Will you crown him or will you crucify him? Jesus stands ready to forgive your sin. That's what Good Friday is all about. His death on the cross paved the way to bring you redemption. Confess your sin, repent, turn to him, and live with him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We have two more people that we need to walk through this evening. We've made it to the cross now, and our next person to discuss will be the thief on the cross. And for this passage, I'm going to look at Luke chapter 23, beginning with verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly for what we are receiving, what we deserve, what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. Amen. What do we know about these two thieves? Admittedly, not much. Luke chapter 23 and verse 32 says that they were led out with Jesus to be executed. So when Pilate ordered Jesus' crucifixion, these thieves also went with Jesus down the Via Della Rosa, that road that led from the Praetorium all the way to Golgotha, the place where they would be crucified. Let's just back up and remind ourselves what crucifixion is. It's a form of capital punishment. The body was often left on the cross until death by asphyxiation. This harsh form of death was supposed to prevent crime. Leaving the body on the cross for a period of time allowed others to see the effects of the punishment and hopefully prevent them from breaking the laws of the Romans. I mean, it would for me. Seeing a person nailed to the cross and left to die would be horrendous. And these two thieves were crucified on each side of Jesus. They were suffering agony in their bodies as well. Perhaps they had family and friends at at the foot of their crosses. I mean, clearly the main focus was upon Jesus. He was a very polarizing figure and some were, were crying out for mercy and others were condemning him. But I'm quite certain that were those in the crowd that were cheering these thieves, the the agony that they had, maybe in some twisted way enjoying the punishment that they were receiving. I mean, after all, they were convicted criminals, weren't they? But I want you to see tonight the depths of depravity in these men. Despite their own torment, they took comfort in mocking Jesus Christ. 
Matthew 27, verse 44, and Mark 15, verse 32, we see that the thieves were joining with the crowd in mocking the Lord Jesus Christ. Even in this passage here, one of the thieves, it said, was hurling abuse at Jesus Christ. Why in the world would they do this? Well, folks, this is a full demonstration of total depravity of sin. It corrupts every single part of us, and their lostness was on full display. They themselves were being punished for their crimes in a very cruel and agonizing way, and yet they took the time to have a little bit of personal comfort by mocking the very one, the only one, who could save their souls. Sin causes us to want nothing to do with God. The Apostle Paul, quoting the book of Psalms, says there's none righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God. You might even be able to see this in people after they die. Remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus? Lazarus? In Luke chapter 16, the rich man finds himself in hell, a place of torment. He's there. He wakes up. He's in fires of torment in his life. And so what does he do? What does he say? Does he cry out for mercy? No, he cries out for just some personal relief. No mention of God, no cries for forgiveness, not that there would be any for him, it was too late. No mention of God whatsoever, no mention of, oh man, I wish I had done things differently. Nothing. Now, I don't want to extend that story too far, so let's go back to the thieves. But you see, in their torment, knowing that they were going to die, they spent, they chose to spend the remaining hours of their life insulting the one who could save them. But then something happens. One of these thieves all of a sudden changes his tune. Luke 23 and verse 40 and following, uh, the one thief all of a sudden rebukes the other thief for what he's doing and admits his own sin. He says, we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. What happened in this passage? Well, at some point, God graciously opened up this thief's heart and eyes to the truth of the one who was dying right next to him. Perhaps he had heard what Jesus had said in a previous verse, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. And perhaps in that moment of hearing that word, God granted this thief faith to believe. But at this point, the thief says, we're suffering justly for what we are receiving. We deserve this. This man has done nothing wrong. But then... What he says next, it just speaks volumes. He says, Jesus, remember me. It's an interesting choice of words, don't you think? See, the thief consciously knew he had nothing to offer Jesus at all. No gifts, no special prayers, nothing with which to convince Jesus that he should join him in paradise. He doesn't ask Jesus, let me come with you. He said, just remember me. All this thief had was simple faith. And you know the good news? That was enough. 
It was enough. And it was on the basis of this simple faith which God had given him. Jesus now, in the middle of the agony that he was experiencing on the cross, this torment and agony, looked over to him and said, no, you're coming with me. This thief's dilemma was this. Would he continue to condemn Jesus Christ or would he confess to Jesus Christ? That's our dilemma as well, isn't it? How shall we call upon Jesus? That's the question. Will you condemn him like everyone else around us, our world, or will we confess to him? You see, Jesus saves people from all types of backgrounds, but you know what unites all of God's people? The uniting factor in all of it is that we have nothing to offer Jesus Christ, nothing to give to him that Jesus would need, And God's people know that with a certainty. Don't try to give God good works. Don't try to give him some kind of lockstep adherence with some kind of moral rule or following of a ritual in order to get God's attention or perhaps save you. Just believe. Confess your sin. Put your faith in what Jesus did on that cross. It is enough to save you. That work What Jesus did was what was required by God. And then from your faith flows all kinds of good works, giving our lives to him, changing the way we live our lives to be pleasing, offering of worship, but it all begins with faith. Today, believe. We would be certainly remiss if on Good Friday we didn't talk about Jesus, would we? And for this, I'm going to look at Matthew chapter 27, beginning with verse 46 through 50. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran, and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. In the final hours of the agony of Jesus on that cruel cross, Jesus cried out in a way that should startle all of us. In that loud voice, I'll say it again, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This verse gets often mishandled. Remember, Jesus was fully God and he was fully man. The son of God added flesh to his deity. He didn't stop being God. I want to be clear that in this moment, the Holy Trinity was not broken apart. But... Jesus was, in fact, quoting Psalm chapter 22. What Jesus said there was word for word from verse 1. But in what way was Jesus forsaken? The full weight of sin of all of those who would believe in his name was forced upon him in a moment. I want you to think about it in in two ways. First, just think of it practically. Jesus was never alone. He had coexisted with the Godhead from eternity past. The Holy Spirit was at his very conception. The Holy Spirit was at his baptism. 
The Holy Spirit and the angels ministered to him after the temptation in the desert. He was in active communion with the Father throughout his whole life. An angel ministered to him in the Garden of Gethsemane, yet now there was no one with him. His disciples were scattered. No angel, none of his disciples, not even the Holy Spirit was active. It was quite quiet. But the second way is what Jesus was experiencing in his humanity is what humans have felt since Adam fell in the Garden of Eden. It's the post-Eden experience that Jesus was feeling. He was born without a human father. He was sinless. He was what Adam should have been in that constant communion with God. But in Adam, we are all children of Adam. When Adam fell, he was separated from the father in a very spiritual way. And now Jesus was experiencing something similar to that. In his humanity, that full brunt of God's unbridled wrath and judgment was being poured out onto the body of Jesus Christ. And it is in this sense and in these ways that Jesus, the Son of God, felt forsaken. Why did Jesus willingly endure this agony, this loneliness... Theologian D.A. Carson said it well. In the first garden, not your will but mine, changed paradise into a desert and brought man from Eden to Gethsemane. Now, not my will but yours brings anguish to the man who prays it, but transforms the desert into a kingdom and brings man from Gethsemane to the gates of glory. This is what Jesus was accomplishing. And we see that in John 19 and verse 30 where he cries out, It is finished. Redemption accomplished. The Father's wrath completely, utterly, and totally satisfied for people who would believe. You see, there was no dilemma for Jesus. When we talk about dilemmas with the others, there's no dilemma for Jesus. There's no chance he would not fulfill his mission. And he did have a mission, didn't he? He came to live a perfect life because we could not. To suffer and die on the cross for sinners and then to be raised again on the third day so that we would walk in newness of life. But there is still a dilemma for us, isn't there? Will we believe or not? Will we confess our sin and repent or not? That's the choice that stands before us right now. Again, I've been saying this over and over. We're talking about the crucifixion. We're talking about redemption accomplished. If you have not cried out to Christ, do it today. Confess your sin, repent, and believe in him. And then Sunday's coming where we get to celebrate his resurrection. And as he walks in newness of life, so do you. Put your faith in him. I want to read to you a poem. It was written by a head of a monastic order back around 1100-ish. It was a poem, but you may recognize it because it had been turned into a hymn since. And it goes like this. O sacred head, now wounded, with grief and shame weighed down, now scornfully surrounded 
with thorns thy only crown. O sacred head, what glory, what bliss till now was thine, yet though despised in glory, I joy to call thee mine. What thou, my Lord, hast suffered was all for sinners gain. Mine, mine was the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. Lo, here I fall, my Savior. Tis I deserve thy place. Look on me with thy favor and grant to me thy grace. Be near when I am dying. Oh, show thy cross to me. And for my rescue flying, Lord, come and set me free. These eyes, new faith receiving, from Jesus shall not move. For one who dies believing, dies safely through thy love. This is what the crucifixion is all about. About what Christ has done for us to purchase redemption. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. In a moment, I'm going to pray because this concludes our Good Friday service. We're going to do something a little different, a little unique. You see, Good Friday is a paradox, isn't it? Such joy knowing what Jesus did, but yet such sorrow and so dark. And sometimes we just need to be reflective for a while, don't we? Sometimes we don't take enough time to truly reflect upon God's word. So I'm going to pray. And then after I pray, you're free to be dismissed. But I want to ask you, be dismissed in quiet reflection. When you leave and get out to the foyers and entrances, feel free to talk and catch up with people. But as you're leaving, think about the dilemmas that you face in your life in light of the crucifixion. How will you answer those questions? How will you live your life in light of the crucifixion? Father, We know that our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. I thank you that we now have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, we can draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Merciful God, have compassion on all those who do not know you as you're revealed in your son, Jesus. Let your gospel be preached with grace and power to those who have not heard it. Turn the hearts of those who resist it and bring home to your fold those who have gone astray. That there may be one flock under one shepherd, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's his name we pray.